0: Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson.
1: All right, man. Well, let's start with a word of prayer and we'll get into tonight's lesson. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together and uh, experience each other's fellowship and koinonia and also the, the ability to study, especially the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. We need to know how to deal with this and how to arm ourselves and uh, protect ourselves. So, Father, grant us wisdom, grant us illumination to your word. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I think where we left off, um, we I think we stopped where James... Um, was talking, I, I think we're going through the, the whole, you know, uh, what do you want to call it, stages of what sin does to us as far as t- temptation. And I think where I stopped was verse 15 in James, and I wanted to unpack that from that, that point on. But again, remember, he's talking about temptation. He's talking about you can't blame God for the situations you're put in, obviously. And then we talked about the three areas, of categories, where you will be hit at in those areas. And then in verse 15, he starts going into the stages. So basically what he is saying is you, Satan is going to uh, lay something before you to entice you, to draw, to draw a desire in you towards the enticement. And the idea there is Satan, or, and we say Satan, but we will, probably what we mean is a demon or a fallen angel who is actually doing the temptation of you. Um, you, you know, you don't want to attribute uh, omnipresence to Satan because he's a limited creature. So more than likely, it's one of his minions of demons or fallen angels that's actually doing the temptation to you. And so what they figure out about you as they observe you is they observe what you have desires for. They learn learn the ins and outs of what you want, what you want to, uh, it's kind of like what you see on the internet, like if if, you know how your internet or your phones are listening to you and your internet devices are listening, and then you go on an internet search and all of a sudden the pop-up ads are coming up because it heard what you were talking about. Like, hey, I'm talking about a trip here, and then you'll see advertisements for trips there. Or I'm talking about a product, and the advertisement uh, for that product pops up on Amazon or whatever. I mean, that's what the algorithms are doing. Well, it's, it's kind of like that, is they they know us so well, and they observe us so well, they figure out our desires, whether those desires are good or illicit. It doesn't matter. That's what they'll use against you is those desires, um, you could have good desires. For instance, um, say, you say, say you say to yourself, I want to be a good dad, or I want to be a good mom. That's a good desire. But then how would Satan pervert that? How would Satan go against that? Well, let's just say you said, I want to be a good dad. Well, he could tempt you to actually enable your kids. And then your, your desire to be a good dad actually turns into an enablement and turns into feeding a problem in your family. Or someone will say, I want to be a good dad, so I need to provide for my family. Well, okay, that's noble, but then what happens if Satan takes that desire and twists it and it makes you a workaholic to where you're providing, but then you you're never there. Okay, you're always gone. And then the house goes upside down because the structure is upside down and then the kids go haywire. And so, yeah, as you can see, Satan can take a, an entirely good thing and twist it. So let's say a, 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 a mom wants to be a good mom, and she wants to be protective of her children getting into sins that she maybe participated in when she was younger. That that That's a good motive, but Satan can twist that. And then so the mom puts the kids in a bubble, a protective bubble, and acts like the things in this world don't exist, and you get into overprotection, and then when the child gets older, you can't contain the bubble anymore, the child breaks through the bubble, and all of a sudden they're introduced to the world, and they've never seen that world, and they're overwhelmed, and it it destroys them. They can't handle it. So a good desire to be protective turns into overprotection, and it jams up the kid and and so it's just things like that so don't think that when when james says that by his own desires that it just means oh it's like a a bad desire to rob banks or you know to murder people it typically is not that it typically is taking something good and perverting it to have the wrong outcome and that's what he typically does so you always have to check i guess your desires and then if you have a good desire you have to check your methodologies as a parent of whether or not your methodologies actually achieves what you want so let me give you an example the overprotective parent we call that with the millennial parents we call them they uh, they've moved my generation is the helicopter parents And then the next generation behind me that's raising kids are the bulldozer parents. Okay? They just bulldoze anything in their way for their kid, and they will make it happen for their kid. Um, That being the case, what would, what damage would a bulldozer parent do to their own kids? If they're bulldozing everything. So, they won't yeah you got kids that don't they can't make decisions cuz mom is all and, and dad are making decisions for them lazy because mom and dad's going to ensure that everything gets done for them so you got a lazy kid you got irresponsibility you have um entitlement yeah all that stuff and so, so when you start realizing, wait a second, my my methodology is actually creating a monster, then that's when you have to check the methodology. So sometimes parents, they have good intents, but their methodologies are wrong. And so the bulldozer parent, the, the, the methodology is to not let the child feel any pain in this life. Because the parent actually is over-identifying with the child's pain using their own pain. And they, they, they reason in their minds, I don't want my child to feel the pain I felt. And so I'm gonna protect them from that pain. And that's the wrong move. We don't wanna, rep- we, you can't, we wanna protect children from harmful pain, but you don't wanna uh, protect children from pain that's associated to normal life. Right? Like a breakup, you know, of two kids dating or getting a bad grade because you failed to study and not, and not blaming the teacher. There's pain associated with life that children need to feel. It's the pain of reality that if you, you do, do not cooperate correctly with reality, there's consequences. But the bulldozer parent doesn't want the kid to feel any consequences and therefore, they become a monster by the time they're adults. Because someone's always paved the way. They have this entitlement mentality and things should go their way and, and, and it creates, creates havoc socially. It's hard to be around those types of people. So that, that's what James is saying is, is look at your desires and make sure you're doing the right methodologies. So He'll tempt you to use the wrong methodologies. Okay. So in verse 15, he says, then when desire has conceived, and the idea that, that that we have a desire, and, and you say to yourself, okay, I want that, and I'm going to try to plan to get that. Okay, It's not that you talk like that, but it's happening in your soul. So when desire has conceived, and, and James is using a birthing illustration, as you can follow him, uh, once you have this desire to, I'm going to go get that, it gives birth to sin. So that's what happens from the conception. But notice, notice that when the conception happens in a, in a pregnancy, there's a nine-month delay before the birth of the sin, or birth of the child. Okay? Now, I didn't mean that way. Maybe, <laughs> maybe your child is sinful. Um, I don't know. The birth of the child comes nine months later, not the child is a sin. Okay, so what I'm trying to point out is that there is a developmental stage that no one sees. That's what James is trying to point out. So the desire can happen inside the person, and that desire can stay inside of them and actually feed the conception and feed the the baby inside so to speak the the sin and it hasn't been acted upon but it's growing inside the person and it's undetected from the outside world okay so when people say man I can't believe this person did this X Y and Z I just can't believe this kinda came out of the left field and James is saying no it didn't it finally gave birth because what you didn't see is that's that was brewing in the person for possibly years, months, decades, I don't know, and now it finally conceived in the person. It just came out like a birth. But it was always growing inside the person. And that's why you never really want to, when you you see someone get into a big issue uh, uh, of sin, they have been dwelling on it for actually a long time. Um, I'm not talking about like... uh, you know, you make a mistake and sin, uh you know, off the cuff or something like that. I'm talking pre-planned desires that I'm going to do this eventually. And, and that's, kind of, that's kind of what we call sinning with, with, uh, with consciousness. You, you're pre-planning what you're doing. Like David pre-planned his adultery with Bathsheba. There was pre-planning involved. Um, anyway, that's, that's what happens. So then the sin is conceived and it gives birth to sin. So the sin will erupt from the desire and what we call spill out into the street. So finally, it's out there for everyone to see. And then notice there's another growing period. And sin, when it is full grown. So that implies that even though the person now has spilled what it, what they want into the streets and they're actively pursuing it, it's still not at the level that it's full-grown. That means it's going to grow like a child and go through its developmental stages until adulthood full-grown. So here's, again, another growing process. So when people start down this path, they commit... I hate to say the word smaller sins, you know, but they they commit sins that just take one step towards a bigger sin and then just take one more step one more step and you could do that with basically anything that uh that has an illicit desire behind it um i don't know um uh, let's just start like let's say with stealing so the person the person starts stealing and what they what they start doing is they start taking little things from stores right and they're going to steal a paperclip. They're going to steal a pencil. They're going to steal little things, right? But if that continues, that person will keep stepping and ramping up as they grow in this sin. And before you know it, they're not just stealing paperclips and pencils. They actually have started embezzling from the company they work for. And, and that, that embezzlement started with stealing. Long time ago. Or verse or even sexual immorality. Sexual immorality that ends in you know some tragic thing of adultery or something like that started a long time ago in the person's life. And it has been festering and festering and festering. And then it breaks out when it's full grown. But notice what it, he says when it's full grown, what does it do? It brings physical death. It's death. The wages of sin is death. Okay, so when you're reading James, what you have to understand is he's introducing the death principle into the believer's life. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. And what he is saying is that if you continue to allow the process of this desire to take over you and you grow it and it becomes fully mature, when you become an adult in the sin, you're going to introduce the death principle into your life. And the death principle means this. The primary idea here is physical death. Your life will be shortened because of this sin that you let get full grown. Now, it could be simpler things. Of, you know, people could make an easy thing of saying, well, he drug overdosed and that's it, and his sin got him, or he died of cirrhosis of the liver, or you know, he died of, of AIDS because of a sexual immorality and you can as an easy thing to trace right you know but it but it's more than that it's more than that it's that sometimes God will take their life early on if they don't stop if they don't stop repent if, if they don't stop and repent he's not gonna let his his child continue on he will he will bring the disciplining process in but if the, uh, if the believer doesn't stop, he, he's going to take their life. He will shorten their life. So the death principle works in many ways. Other ways other than physical death, the more the, so, that someone gets into full-grown sin, the more they kill all relationships around them. They won't have good relationships because no one can put up with them and no one can stand them anymore because their sin is affecting everybody that comes in contact with them. So they'll kill relationships. They'll kill their family. The family will not will not be able to be around them any longer. So they kill that aspect. They will kill their employment because no one wants to hire them because they're such a bad employee because of their sin. And what you start realizing that every facet of their life starts dying. Relationships, employment, ability to make money, all that stuff starts dying. Now, the good news is this. That anywhere in the process, the person can stop. That's why it, it's a, it's a it's a process of when the desire gives birth to sin, and then when the sin is full-grown. So at any point, that believer can arrest what they're doing and stop it. And at the minute they stop it, the process stops, and they stop introducing the death principle into their life. And things can be restored at that point in time. Their relationships can be restored. Their jobs can be restored. Their physical life can be restored. If they will stop, we call that repenting. Okay. Most of the passages you're going to read in the New Testament refer to believers repenting of sins in order not to physically die. And so the good news is you can stop. So when someone tells you, I can't I just can't stop this I just keep going back James is saying no you can actually you can stop it at any point in the process will you need help of course you will need help will you need other people to help you yes you will you'll have to have the body of Christ to actually help you out because a lot of times you won't be able to do it on your own but at the end of the day there is no sin that you can't have victory over because you have the ability in you became based on the Holy Spirit's indwelling of the new nature and if you would access and yield the Holy Spirit and access the new nature and resist you can stop not always easy but you can the victory's there if you want it but so let me ask you this why do so few get victory over certain sins why does it become a dominant factor in their life what's going on when they could stop the process when they have the tools to stop what do you think's going on and they're dying at the same time okay they're seeing the ramifications of their sin and they realize these things are dying around them but why did they continue on pride they don't want to stop? Yeah. Absolutely. There's a reward in it. And, and you know, uh, in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 says that uh, Moses forsook Egypt, um, you know, uh, bec- because there's pleasure in sin, and he forsook the riches of Egypt. To live in the wilderness and, and lead, lead Israel in paraphrasing. But the writer of Hebrews will make the point that there is pleasure in sin. He forsook the pleasure of sin. So, and, and so, and then how does pride work into that? Well, first of all, people don't like to be told that they're wrong. That's the first one. Even though all Hades is breaking loose around them, they, they won't admit that all Hades is breaking loose around them. And so the pride stops it, and then the pleasure that's involved in the sin keeps them hanging on. So um, sin. uh, one of the things you have to understand about sin and why people get caught in and can't break free is because sin becomes an escapism. That's how Satan typically will draw people into sin. It becomes an escape. How so? Well, there's a lot of pain in this life. And people cause us pain, we cause our own pain. Um, uh, the devil causes us pain, the fall causes us pain. Okay, So we have all this pain that we're dealing with. Well, if you don't know how to biblically handle that pain, I, you can already bet what the person will do, right? The person will try to find a place that they can escape the pain. So they'll dive into addictions like alcoholism, drugs, sex, hobbies, it could be anything to get away from the pain. Even if it's temporary, temporary for a season, they can at least escape the pain for the hour, for the half day, for the night, or whatever it might be. And so the, the reason they, they know the sin is killing them, they know it, but they don't want to leave it because they have no place to escape if you take that away from them the drugs is giving them a place to escape the pornography is giving them a place to escape and so the reason it's so hard to break away they don't know what to do when there's no place to escape but what they don't understand is that God gives the coping skills in order to handle the pain it's called grief and they won't go to grief to escape the pain because in grief you have to experience the pain of loss before you can let go and so that's what they're sometimes afraid of is experiencing that pain the initial pain that has to happen in order to grieve properly you have to embrace the pain of what you lost Okay. And once you embrace the pain of what you lost, then you can move through the stages of grief, as they've noted. The stages of grief, uh, shock. I can't believe this is happening to me. Anger. Depression. Bargaining. I wish I would have done something different. I shouldn't have gotten involved in that. Yada, yada, yada. Why did you let me ha- do that, God? Bargaining. Until you finally get to the last stage, which is I can release. But you have to go through embracing pain of loss in order to release. So what happens to some people is they have so much pain uh, that happened to them. They don't want to experience any more pain. They don't realize that there's good pain and bad pain, right? The good pain is redemptive pain of embracing what you lost. That's redemptive pain. Bad pain is what these people gave you or what Satan or the world gave you. It's bad pain. You don't want to feel that anymore. So you start being deceived by Satan, thinking that all pain is the same. And so you start going into a mode of, i got to avoid all pain. I just can't feel anything. I can't feel anything. So some people go numb emotionally. They cut themselves off emotionally, or they look for escape. They look to escape. Any pain. All pain. And the only way they can do that is Satan's worldly techniques of addictions, drugs, alcohol, uh, relationships, serial monogamy, um, uh, workaholism, you name it, you know, people get into all kinds of vices in order to avoid pain. And so you have to be strong enough in the Lord to 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 give up and radically amputate the things that make you feel good temporarily the things that give you an escape the things that give you some type of pleasure or feeling good and then come over to the biblical model and use the tools God provides his grace and mercy And embrace the pain of what you lost, which is extremely hard, but you actually can do it with his tools. So here's what happens. If you want to embrace the pain biblically, you go before the Lord in Hebrews chapter four, and you ask the Lord for help in the Messiah's name for his grace and mercy. And Lord, I need help in doing this. And he's going to say he's going to answer that prayer. Okay? And here's what's going to happen. The way he's going to answer it is he's going to send things or send people to you that will actually be able to help you. But you cannot refuse the help because the help will not come in the form or fashion you think it's going to come. That's the problem with some people is that God sends them the help and it doesn't come in the form or fashion in which they like it. So they actually reject the grace and the mercy and they don't get any help because it's not what they want. And, and so when you ask for help, you can expect the help but it probably won't be in the form that you want it to be in. And that's for a reason. So when Elijah needed help, remember that? He needed food and water. What did he do with Elijah? He put him by the brook Cherith, and he fed him with what? Ravens. Why feed Elijah with an unclean bird? Do you ever notice that? A raven. You don't touch a raven in Judaism. They're unclean. But Elijah is forced to take food from a mouth of an unclean bird. If he wants to eat. Yes, there's that element there that I'm going to give you help, but you must be humble to take it from the delivery system I'm giving it to you. Because if your pride gets in the way of your acceptance of my help, then you're not going to get help. So I will feed you with ravens. Now, what does that mean? What does that function in practical life? He's going to send you somebody that might annoy you. Okay? He might send you somebody that gets in your dish and doesn't enable you anymore and doesn't play around anymore. He will finally send someone you actually need. Not that you want, but what you need you sometimes will need someone to get in your dish and say, you need to quit playing games. Right now, it ends today. Now, some people don't like that. Oh, I, I God, I, I I just want it. I want the help served up like a Twinkie. I want it to be soft and gooey and nice. And And God's going to say, we're over the nice things now. You're about to kill yourself. I need to get you scared straight and get you on the right path so I'm going to actually scare you with the help and you're gonna have to accept it now that's being fed by a raven it's unclean it's nothing you would go after but if you really want the help that's what you have to do to get it so he's actually going to test you on whether you want the help why I'm asking for help, but what I, I mean, you, I got to go through this other hurdle of actually being tested of how I want to get the help. Yeah. Why? Why does he push you to, to that end? Yeah, patience and endurance. Absolutely. That's in there. Checking your faith. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, good point. So all those things combined is saying, you've been doing things your way. And the people you think are helping you are actually hindering you. They're too soft with you. And we need a velvet hammer with you. Because so we're talking about sin, okay? We're talking about people involved in sin. They need a velvet hammer at some point in time, right? They need to be knocked upside their head and saying, what are you doing? what what are you thinking about this you're going to kill yourself right you need somebody at that point to give you tough love and if you don't get tough love and you're f- surrounding yourself with enablers they're there you're okay you're human you make mistakes all the time and and we all make mistakes just keep praying and i'm sure one day you'll overcome That's not help. The person then has to be put, uh, and, we're, and we're not talking about your regular person. We're talking someone that's done this, okay? That's went out, and they're slowly killing themselves. Okay, they have to wake up. They have to be told, "Hey, your way of managing life is not only killing yourself, but you're killing everybody around you. You're stressing us all out." you're causing family problems you're causing division you have become the elephant in the room we're all talking about when you're not here you're the problem and see most people don't think like that they don't think they're the problem but and why is this necessary because sometimes people have to be told the hard truth about themselves they have no introspection they don't don't do any self-evaluation of themselves and so sometimes reality has to smack them. And so God will send ravens. And that's how He typically works. Now, if you cooperate, which is great, then things will go a little bit easier. But the more you resist, the harder He will put hindrances in front of you in order to see if you will jump over that. So let me give you an example. Um, the woman, the Syrophoenician woman that wanted Jesus to heal her, and uh, you remember the barriers actually Messiah put in front of her. Okay, first of all, the disciples were the barrier. Get away, get away, tell her to get away, and she kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then he finally puts up another barrier. Messiah says it himself. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Barrier. Why two barriers? you got disciples, the disciples putting the barrier between her and Jesus, and then Jesus himself putting a verbal barrier between her and him. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Why did he put or allow two barriers for that woman? Do you really want to be healed? Will you push through the hindrances in your life to get the help you need, and what did she do? She pushed right through, didn't she? She comes back to him and says, "Even the, the the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table." Bingo. What she showed and illustrated to the disciples, Jesus already knew this. Is that this is the kind of faith that it takes in order to get the help you need? You have to be willing to push through barriers you have to be willing to see if the test of faith if you can push through hindrances that i intentionally put ahead of you will you do that and if you will you will get the the grace and the mercy so there's there's always a key aspect in this of of how you get help from god you have to play by his rules man otherwise you won't get it okay so at that point If you refuse the help, if you refuse the ravens, if you refuse the grace and mercy in the way it's coming to you, then what will happen? Hebrews chapter 12. When you don't access grace and mercy, a root of bitterness grows inside your soul. A root of bitterness grows inside of you. And and there is where Satan will capitalize for the rest of your life if that root doesn't get out. So what, what does the root represent? The root represents you and I not biblically handling our pain correctly. And so that pain gets in there, and so what bitterness is a good word for it because it makes us bitter, it makes us angry, it makes us revengeful, it makes us mad at God, it makes us mad at other people because it's causing bitterness in our soul. And therefore, Satan will use that as a foothold in our spiritual walk to use our root against us. And that's how he knows to play the game. That's what's going on behind the scenes. And that's why it ends up leading to death. So so if you have a root of bitterness because you have not accessed God's grace and mercy and have, have accepted it the way he's offered it, then you will not have the grace and mercy to overcome the sin and if you don't have the grace and mercy to overcome the sin then eventually you will shorten your life somehow, some way. So for instance, like the commandment like the commandment about thou shalt honor your father and mother, right? It's repeated under the law of the Messiah but what's the promise behind the commandment you shall honor your father and mother? So that what? Your days will be long. Now, it's it's interesting that Paul changes the language under the law of the Messiah, because under Israel, it says that your days will be long in the land. But when he talks to the church, he says that your days will be long on the earth, or on the, yeah, on the earth or in the world. He gives another broader application to it. And so, actually, if you follow that commandment, or if you don't follow it, you actually shorten your life. You will shorten your life if you do not respect your parents. So that's where the death principle comes in. And so this is this is where we have the ability to stop it at any point in time, but you've got to know how to access grace and mercy. Now, people talk about grace and mercy, but they don't know how to access it. Now, the other thing about accessing the grace and mercy, you have to be humble enough to realize that when He gives you grace and mercy, you're going to have to work on your side. Now, let me let me explain this. You remember there was a scene in the Old Testament about a floating axe head. Remember that story? And I think it was under uh, Elisha's, maybe Elijah. Elijah. I can't, I, I'm going off the top of my head right now. It was Elisha, wasn't it? With the floating axe head. Yeah. Okay. So they're working on the seminary so to speak you know uh, for profits they're building a new thing and and they're having a good time whatever and they're working on building this and some guy swinging an axe pops off the thing and goes into the jordan river and he freaks out and he says man that was that was a borrowed axe i didn't own that man what am i going to do and so then elijah elijah comes says look this is what will happen so Praise the God. And and God actually lifts the axe out from the bottom of the river to the top of the river. Okay? And it's there floating on the top. And then then Elijah says, Now go get it. And there's something there's something important to see about this. God did what he needed to do but God notice what God didn't do he didn't he once the ax was on top of the water he didn't make it come over and go into the man's hands And, and and the guys just standing there on the on the river and it floats into his hands that's not what happened the axe head comes up in the water and it's out there in the Jordan so what does the guy have to do his responsibility he's gotta go out into the river and walk out there and grab the axe head off the top of the water and then go back to the the river and that's how he gets it back. What is that an interplay of? I'm going to give you grace so you can find the axe head but I expect you to go in the water and grab it once I lift it up out of the water. You see the dynamic balance in that? God does his part but he will not do what he expects man to do. There's a balance there. And so in the same thing about the help God gives, you are not going to be able to sit on the spiritual couch and it be served up to you on a silver platter. Here's what God's going to say. Oh, okay, I'm going to provide a counselor for you. And you may not like this counselor because this counselor is going to get in your dish. And you're going to have to pay for this counselor, $150. $150. Well, I, you know, hey, that's a lot of money. You know, well, what did you want? You want your your free advice? Is that what you wanted? You see what God's doing? I provided you a counselor, but you're telling me you don't want the counselor because you don't want to pay. Well, it's just too much. You know, I'm, I'm real busy and I can't go and I can't make time for that. Oh, it's not important for you, right? I'm making, a, I'm giving you a counselor, but you're too busy to accept the grace and mercy that God's affording you. You see how that works? And people will, will do that all the time. They will know where to get the help, and they won't access it. Well, hey, they have this great Bible study, and it's dealing with the very topic that you struggle with. I don't got time for that. I'm too busy. Oh, okay. Hey, there's this guy we know. He's a topical expert on this subject here in town. You ought to go see him. They never get around to it so why is that again they don't want to do the labor that it takes on their side to get the grace and the mercy there has to be some expenditure of energy that you go and get it hey this church is making this available you gotta go to that church to get that to get whatever you're looking for it's not gonna happen where you're at you have to go there you're gonna have to change and, you know, it's like it's like that old thing that Dr. Jerry Falwell used to say the the, "the the woman came to complain to Dr. Falwell and said, you know, Dr. Falwell, you know, I just really don't like my church. They've they've gone off the rails. And, I, you know, so I just don't know what to do. And he says, why don't you leave? And she says, well, my grandma is bar- buried in the church graveyard. I can't leave her. And he goes, ma'am, if your grandma was alive, she would have left with you already. So you need to leave. But what's the point? The person knows that something's wrong there, but won't leave because they don't like change. They don't want to adapt to a new environment. They don't want to go where the water's at. You see what I'm saying? Then Elijah gets moved later on. And he has to accept uh help from a gentile woman, a widower. So he goes from ravens to a gentile woman. It's like, oh my goodness, it can't get any worse. Right? Now again, I'm talking from Jewish standpoint. I'm not making a derogatory thing towards women. Please don't get me wrong on that. Um in in the Jewish culture in that time, to get help from not only a Gentile, but a Gentile woman was like the lowest thing a Jew could do. They have no dealings with Gentiles, especially a Gentile woman, because in their minds, that's a second-class citizen type. So again, remember, that's cultural context. That's not me saying that, that's a cultural context. And so Elijah is forced to get help, from someone in his mind he would never in a million years go to get help from but he's forcing it now why did he do it to to Elijah because he's showing Israel that's how you are Israel what I'm doing with Elijah is this is I'm providing ravens for you Israel I'm providing Gentiles to help you and you won't accept the help I'm giving you through them so so what Elijah is being put through is a picture of Israel. And, and they're, they're balking at how God's grace and mercy is coming to them. So anyway, I, I, I want to take you through that so that you can understand that's how you should look for the grace and mercy. It will come in ways that you didn't expect. And it will be from people who will actually, for the first time, tell you the truth about you. And you have to be okay with that. Because the wounds from a friend will help you. They will say, the way you're doing life is all messed up, man. We've got to start all over. This is messed up. And you've got to be okay with that if you want the help. If you want the help. Let's move on. Let's move to the other aspect of Satan being the deceiver. And it's a picture of him continuing deceiving deceiving people that's that's what it says in revelation 12 so there's several things i'll point these all out we'll go one by one so you can write these in your notes about how he deceives and we'll start with the first one the first one of how he hides uh, the truth from us is he obviously hiding the scriptures from us now, that's a pretty easy one to understand, and it's a basic one that every believer knows that if you don't know the Scriptures that well, you're going to be easily deceived. That's what's happening around the world, uh, around the churches. The reason the churches are going woke and the reason the churches are doing what they're doing right now and pushing the, same, the things that the same thing the world does is because they don't know the Scriptures. They don't know how to parse out the Scriptures. The inability to not see cultural Marxism invading the church is because of scriptural ignorance. The inability to not connect dots with what's happening in the world as far as the last days, that the inability to not see that the vaccines are going beyond you being vaccinated, but it's going to go to a bioengineered digital vaccination card The inability to see that and know where this is all going and know this is going to a world control is because they don't know the Scriptures. Now, it doesn't say that specifically in Scripture, but what does the Scriptures say? The Scriptures predict endpoints in prophecy. And if you know the endpoints, then you can see how they're bringing things to that endpoint. That's how you can tell. Now, how about on the level of discernment? People... The church has a major problem right now in discerning. They can't discern things. Discernment is a gift, but that gift has to be developed. And how do you develop that gift? You have to, you have to know the Scriptures backwards and forwards in order to have discernment. So, what does discernment do? Discernment allows you to read the situation and the person and what they're up to but the only way you can read the person and read the situation is you better know the scriptures particularly in the cases of wisdom wisdom the wisdom literature in scripture teaches you how to read people it teaches you how to read the situation this is the problem with most Christians they can't read people and they can't read the situation they can't read their pastor they have that the pastor has an agenda and he's up to something but they can't see it the world has an agenda right now but a lot of people can't see it they're blind to it and 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 then as far as discernment is concerned not only can they not discern other people and the situation they can't discern themselves they don't know how to interpret themselves they don't know how they fit into this drama and this is a big deal so this is one of the big things of why people are deceived is because they don't know the scriptures but they lack discernment because they don't know the scriptures so let me ask you this do you think In some cases, that if you listen to a person long enough, they will actually tell you where they're at spiritually. Yes, because what comes out of the mouth? The heart speaks. So if you want to discern somebody, all you need to do is keep your mouth shut and let them talk. But you know what people do? They want to think about what they're going to say to the person instead of listening to the person. But what you really need to do as far as what the Scriptures say is you need to be slow to speak and quick to hear. Listen to what the individual says, and if you keep the person talking long enough, they'll reveal themselves. It'll come out. And they, they, they can't keep the cat in the bag. The cat comes out of the bag, and they will tell you what they're up to. So just keep them talking. Keep them talking. Can you tell, by the way someone carries themselves, what they're up to? Sometimes, right? It's That's a hard one. But you can tell by someone's walk. You can tell by someone's way they hold the, their shoulders because 90% of what a person gives off is nonverbal cues. You have to be able to read nonverbal cues. You have to be, te- you have to be, have enough discernment to know when someone's lying to you. You have to know the telltale signs of when someone's lying to you. You have to know what a habitual liar does because they're on TV all, t- all the time, right? They're, they're on TV all the time. And most people think like guys like Don Lemon or all these, these talking heads are spitting out truth when they're spitting out lies or Biden or Kamala Harris or anything. Anyway, how come the mo- the, 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 most of the people can't discern that? I know the other half of the country can, but the other ones can't. I saw an interview the other night with um, they were interviewing these people at this rally for that Virginia guy that Biden was uh, speaking for. That guy's a, a you know a, a, I can't remember his name McCullough, McCullough right? Yeah, McCullough. And um, they asked some of these people that, that at that rally, well, you know, I, and I can't remember all what the subject was. But, oh, uh, how he said that parents shouldn't be involved in their kids' education, right? Which is a a no-no, that's that's bad. And the people responding were like, oh, that's not even a, that's a non-issue. And I'm like, dude, you don't even know when you're being lied to. You don't even know that that's wrong. See, what happens with people is they put out signals. They put out signals by their nonverbal gestures. It's the way they sit. It's the way they stand. It's the way they move their head. It's the way they look at you. It's the way they look away. It's all those kinds of things. You have to be able to read that. Okay? Because what's happening right now is people are being deceived by habitual liars that are so good it takes almost an expert to read their body language. But they are lying. And what ends up happening is that so not only do you listen, but you watch. And what you'll see many times is their body language will actually contradict what they're saying. So they might say, we're doing this for the children. And they'll betray themselves by the way they're actually posturing themselves. And you'll know, instantaneous that's a liar. Now, the Holy Spirit will help you in discerning a lot of that. But this is this is a, a skill set that you have to get by reading wisdom literature from the Bible. So like the Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, James is wisdom literature. And when you read that wisdom literature, you will see how people behave and then you will be able to spot them. There's actually three types of people in the world and you have to categorize each person. There's evil people there's fools, and then there's the wise. Those are the three categories of people. So when you're sizing someone up, you have to know what category they're in. Are they a fool? Are they a wise? Or are they evil? Now, evil people, it's pretty easy. You just get away from them. Okay? You stay away. You stay away from Kamala Harris. Okay? Okay? But fools, it takes a little bit more, more umption there. So there's two types of fools in the category of fool. There's a fool that is simply ignorant of the facts. They don't have their facts, and that makes them a fool. Then there's the fool that when you show them the facts, they don't care. They want to remain in their foolish, ignorant position. So you have to discern what kind of fool I'm dealing with. Am I dealing with just a person who doesn't know anything, or am I dealing with somebody that doesn't want to know the truth? You have to discern that. The teachable is simple, or sorry, the righteous, because they're teachable. Basically, they want to learn, they want to grow from things, they want to understand things. And so, you know, when you're dealing with people, you have to size them up. Where are they at on that scale? Now, how do you ha- ha- how do you respond to an evil person? You don't. How do you respond to a fool who's ignorant but just lacks information? You give them information. What do you do to a fool who's rejecting information? You don't give them information. What do you do with the wise? You give them information, they actually get better. So you gotta know who to give information to. So at least two of the people you're gonna be dealing with, you don't give information to. You remain silent. Because no amount of information is gonna help them. And if you give an evil person more information, they'll actually t- take that information and twist it on you and use it against you. That's what they do. And so this is where Jesus comes in in wisdom literature and and says, "Look, you can't cast your pearls before swine. You got to know who the swine are. The swine are going to take that that pearl and trample it and then attack you for giving them that pearl and you have to be able to discern that. So the mistake a lot of people make when they're dealing with people is they want to keep bombarding the person with information. And that's the wrong move. You give information to the wise. You give information to the fool who wants information. But if I keep giving a fool who's who's willfully ignorant or if I keep giving an evil person information, the scripture says you become the fool. If you're evangelizing. So
0: you're out evangelizing and in your heart you feel like uh, the person that you you spotted um, wouldn't take your message or, or would be a fool, but maybe God wants you to speak to that person. How do you go about discerning something like that uh, without um, stepping over that boundary,
1: you present information first and see their reaction to the information. Now, if they want more, you can see if the door is open. If they close the door, then don't give any more at that point in time. They're not. They're not receptive. You have to. You have to approach them with the information first, right? But you know, here's the thing. You know, that's evangelism. But m- the, the real crux of the matter. M- most of the time, you're going to spend with people you know already. Okay, So if you know somebody you already know, like in your family, and it's one of your uncles, and you've told them like 20 times the gospel, you do, do you keep giving him the gospel? You need to stop. They don't. They, they're just going to reject things from you. And the more they reject, the more condemnation that's actually being put on them at the same time. So here's the thing. You only have to correct someone once. You only have to tell somebody one time. That's it. Because when you watch Jesus through the Gospels, he doesn't repeat himself. He corrects, and then he leaves it. And basically he puts the onus on the person. You heard what I said, so now you have a choice either to react to it or reject it. And so the idea is, we think more information helps people after they've heard the truth, and it doesn't. It actually condemns them. And it actually makes you the fool to keep giving information to someone who keeps rejecting it. You've got to be very, very wise with truth. Okay? Yeah.
0: A lot of times when we try to minister to our own family, it tells us in the Word that a prophet's not welcome in his <laughs> oh, own
1: family. Oh, boy. So yep.
0: the thing to do in a case like that is to pray and say, Lord, send the laborers to witness yeah. to sweep this person into
1: the kingdom. Yeah. Send someone else because it's not going to be me. Uh, you know, you know, send send circumstances something into their life, and it's hard because this is a family member, and you want to see positive things happen to them. But you ha- you have to respect God's timing in all of that, and you got to know when to back off. This is why Jesus went into parables, right? The reason he went into parables is that actually hide truth from them. He was hiding; he was speaking the truth, but he was hiding truth from them. And, and yeah, that was a penalty for them. But the other thing was an, it was an act of grace to hide the truth from them because the more truth he gave them, the more condemnation they would have in the lake of fire. And So he's lessening the condemnation in a lot of ways by speaking in parables. As a, and it was a penalty as well. Okay, so th- there's the idea of hiding the truth. Let's move to the next one. He'll hide the truth about the situation, experience, or pain that you went through. Okay. What do you mean by this? So we're all going to go through situations in our life that are very painful for us. That, that, that was a horrific experience. We don't wish this on our worst enemies, but it happened to us. Okay. It happened to us and we, we have the scars today because of it. We carry those scars today and they're very painful. Right? Okay. So what Satan will do Is get you to interpret that pain and that experience improperly not from a biblical standpoint but he'll make you look at it uh, from a, a kind of a worldly lens so for instance like we mentioned before James talks about God doesn't tempt anybody well one of the biggest misunderstandings is that who experiences the pain will personalize it and say, blame God for what happened to them. And that's a big no no. That will derail you spiritually for a very long time if you blame God for what the mishap or what happened. Or, he wasn't there for me, he didn't provide, he didn't protect me. Um, where was he, and why did he let this happen to me? And so Satan wants you to blame God. That's the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding is to personalize it, is to personalize it. So, like, for instance, let's say you went through divorce as a child. Um, as, I, I, the first thing that happens to a child in a divorce is they tend to personalize the divorce. Well, what do you mean? They actually start blaming themselves for what their parents did. They'll say, I I must be, there must be something wrong with me. I must have done something that they don't like. I must not be valuable enough for my parents to stay together. Um, I must not be worth it enough for my parents to stay together because this wouldn't have happened if I was valuable enough and I was I was X, Y, and Z kid to them. So believe it or not, the person will personalize it and blame themselves for what their parents did. That sets in motion an identity problem. So what is the identity that comes from something like that? Well, well, I, I must not be worth anything. I must be of no value if my father or my mother abandoned me. There's something they rejected me for. Maybe I wasn't smart enough. Maybe I wasn't good-looking enough. Maybe I didn't have the right personality. Maybe I didn't have whatever it took, the athleticism or you know, the intelligence, whatever it might be, whatever you conjure up in your head will be what your identity becomes. So you'll take on a shame-rejected identity, and he's got you at that point. So you start thinking, I'm all messed up, there's something wrong with me, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, and then you start living your life like that in a shame-rejected identity. Okay, so then what what comes out of that? Well, that will affect all your relationships. that will affect all your how you deal with life. So for instance, you can take one or two paths, you can take a path of destruction, you can take a path of, of um, performance. like I, I think I've mentioned this before. and so what what happens is your behavior will be linked to what you believe about yourself, and then, then what happens is He acts, Satan hides the truth of what happened. What's the truth? The truth is, you had nothing to do with your parents' divorce. That was between them, and it had nothing to do with you. That's the truth. That's how you are to biblically think about what happened. And you are not to blame God, because what happened to you was from evil people, or it came from the fall, or it came from Satan, or it came from yourself. But don't blame God for that. So see how he distorts reality and makes you believe things so he actually hides the truth about the situation from you. So if you think you were rejected by your parents, you'll go through life with that. And what ends up happening is the person will have relationships, but they end up sabotaging the relationship that they're in. Because they want relationship, but they know they're not good enough for it, so they'll, they'll do something in the relationship to end it. Stonewall the person, you know, just whatever, disconnect emotionally, whatever it might be. They will actually sabotage their relationships because in their minds, I'm no good. They're going to find out why I'm rejected by my parents and I don't want to feel the pain of them rejecting me. And so I'm just going to break it off. And therein lies why people go through the dating cycle like there's no tomorrow. Serial dating. And they can't find the right person because they have the problem inside of them. They think there's something that they're not. They believe a lie. So that's that's how Satan hides the truth. And then he does the other thing. He hides the truth about ourselves. What's the truth about you? Well, the truth is this. You're made in the image of God. Christ died for you. That makes you extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. You're that precious that God would let His Son be sacrificed for you. I mean, that's it. You don't, you don't need anything else other than to know that, as far as your value and worth is concerned. But if you don't believe that, and you believe you're less than that valuable, then you don't know the truth about yourself. Now, it's true we're sinners. But still, as sinners and broken, we're that valuable to him. And and so he'll hide that from you. He wants you to think about, you know what? You're irredeemable trash. God doesn't want you. God doesn't need you. Um, What what would he do with you? You have so much baggage. You have so much junk you've done. You just need to stay away from God. He only wants the all-stars. You see how he plays like that? You're no good. And so if you don't know the truth about yourself, no, I am valuable. I am, I, he has died for me and that he can redeem what the locusts have eaten. Then that sets in motion how you think about yourself. But most people don't think biblically about themselves. And again, it's, don't get me wrong. It's not the, the Joel Olstein, you know, self-esteem movement that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and, and we're all, we're all happy to be in your presence. That's that's the Joel Olstein. That's but biblical balance is this: you're a sinner, but you're extremely valuable. You have amazing talent, but you're weak. It's that it's that balance right there, right? Of really knowing who I am. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I am valuable. Yeah, I have talents and gifts, but I'm weak. My flesh is weak. I'm temptable, but yet. I can withstand temptation at the same time with the new nature and the old nature. And that becomes how you need to look at yourself and your identity. If you can get that down, then you won't succumb to these other temptations. So let's use a temptation. If you, let's say, um, the temptation that will come to you if you don't know yourself. So the temptation will be something like this. Hey, you know how you're flawed and messed up and you're no good and you're no account. And you'll say, yeah, I do. I do. Well, you better not show that to anybody because you know what they're going to do if they know that about you. They're going to reject you. Yeah, you're right. So you better put on a front. Yeah, but what kind of front can I put on? Well, it's easy. Just perform for them. Be a yes person. Be, be, be someone that's, that never speaks the truth, but just, you know, you're trying to be Mr. Nice Guy. Appease people. Make them feel good. And then you'll be liked. And no one will ever come against you. And so that person actually becomes a person that cannot deliver truth. Because they're afraid of rejection. And they can't take a stand towards anybody or anything for the truth because they're afraid of being rejected. So they front with being Christian nice guy. Right, or dependency, right? And if you play the role of Christian nice guy, you're not going to have any influence with the truth. And so he can shut you down by performing and wanting to be liked and keep your mouth shut at the same time that's how he'll tempt you and he'll tempt you through you can't face the pain and rejection again you know how it felt we can't go there hey man I'm just looking out for you right that's what he's gonna say to you and you're gonna think yeah you're right man I can't face that pain again I'll just play it cool and I'm gonna keep my mouth shut and I'm not I'm not gonna talk about the elephant in the room at dinner Because it's going to to upset dad, and I don't want to upset dad, uh, and start a fight. So I'll just keep my mouth shut.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for The Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, Remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.